Uh, Mark, Mark 7, verse 24. Are you ready for God's word this morning? I'm ready for God's word this morning. From here, Jesus arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. But Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first. Listen to this response from Jesus. Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Then he said to her, For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she had come to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter lying on the bed. Again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude, put his fingers in his ear, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then he took, he looked up to heaven, sighed, and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one, but the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. And that's the title of our message, All Things Well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's pray. <clears throat> You who have the power to chase the demons away, to open deaf ears, to help a man with a speech impediment, to loose his tongue, You who have the ability, God, and the desire to save your children and give us new life. You're the God that we come to today. No lowercase g God, but the creator of all things. You who made all things out of nothing. And you... For when your creation fell, came in the likeness of men. Thank you, God. Teach us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is full of mysteries. You would agree. 
For you, when you think of a mystery, maybe you think of a rock formation called Stonehenge and the pyramids of Egypt, and we look at them and we say, how? Maybe when you think of a mystery, it's the 1975 disappearance of union leader Jimmy Hoffa, and you look and you say, where? <laughs> Maybe it's watching Sherlock Holmes or reading a Sherlock Holmes novel of old, or recently watching a CSI, be it CSI Miami, CSI New York, CSI Las Vegas, CSI Bahamas, no, they don't have that one yet, uh, or NCIS, and you're watching these and you're saying, who done it? Who? Because they're mysteries. Even as kids, we watch mysteries. It's always fun to me to watch, uh, to watch Shaggy and the gang uh, in the Green Machine unveil the culprit and uh, there is the uh, Scooby-Doo mysteries. And then as the kids, we all sing when we figure out Blue's Clues. We just figured out Blue's Clues because we're really smart. Because when we figure out the mystery, it's like, wow, it's worth telling someone. There are greater mysteries. You think about it, when there are some of these diseases that can't be cured, and physicians are trying for years upon years, I can't imagine how they felt in the 1960s when they found a cure for measles, which was a serious condition leading to brain infection and even death. When they found that, when they found that vaccine, I have to imagine there was some kind of celebration because they found the cure. Could you imagine today if they found a cure for cancer, if they found a cure for AIDS, if they found a cure for MS, if they found a cure for ALS or depression, and they put it in your hands, what would you do with it? What would you do with it? Of course, you would go out there, you would, you would run to tell people if you were given the cure, if they solved the mystery, and you had the answer, and yet in your hand is a book that holds the mystery of life. As we like to teach, it answers the five crucial questions. How did we get here? Why are we here? What went wrong? Why is there a longing in our heart for things to be different or better, and how to satisfy that longing? The mysteries of life, the origin of man, the purpose of man, it's all covered in this book. And so if you've ever walked in and you said, well, you know what, I'm wondering, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why am I struggling? This book answers that question. You have the answers. Have you ever told anyone? Because the mystery has been unveiled to you. But within that mystery is this beautiful thing called the church. That is the mystery of mysteries. And we have the wrong impression of the church sometimes. It used to be taught like this. I worked on this for about 20 minutes with my wife last night because I'm not the most coordinated cat in the world. No. Um, and it even hurts when I do it. Okay. You remember this, right? Yeah. This is the church. This is the steeple. Open the doors and see all of the people. Did I do that right? Yes, sir. Okay, I got it right. Okay, but here's the problem. The church isn't about, this isn't the church. The building isn't the church. It's never been the church. It'll never be the church. The church is the people. And that's the problem. It's not big business, it's not entertainment. The church is, in essence, the body of believers assembling together to worship, praise, and pursue God together, to embody the love and unity that God models, and to be his hands and feet in a lost and dying world. That's the church. That's the church. 
It isn't a business. I'm not the CEO of this business. This isn't a show. My friends, it is the people. It's about the people. Red, yellow, black, white, brown, they are precious in his sight. The people that speak different languages than you do, the people, the people that dress differently than you do, the people that have different accents than you do, male, female, rich or poor, irregardless of all of the labels that we have put on people. Disseminating every label and it has the capacity to break down every barrier that we have created. That's the church. That's the beauty of the mystery of God. Now this mystery starts in the Old Testament. There's an explanation when God calls Abraham, I'm going to make you the father, not just of one nation, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. Upon first read and before the coming of Jesus, you look and you say, well, how's God going to do that? Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob, Israel. We know he's the father of the children of Israel. But I mean, what does it mean when he says that he's the father of many nations? We further see the mystery in verses like Isaiah 49.6 that said, It is a light, God said, It is a light thing that thou shouldst be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore and preserve Israel. I will also give thee a light to the Gentiles that thou may be my salvation to the end of the earth. So again, it's there. So there's the allusion to the mystery, but what we have when we get into the New Testament, we have the genealogy of Jesus. And if you've read the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1, it includes Gentiles. Mind blown. And not only includes Gentiles, it includes a Gentile woman. Not only does it include a Gentile woman, but it includes a Gentile woman that is a prostitute. Again, mind blown. Okay, so this is the genealogy of Jesus. By the end of Matthew, he says, This all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and make disciples of some nations. No, 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 that's not what it says. It says, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. Every tribe, every tongue, teaching them to obey some of the things I've commanded you. No, everything I've commanded you, and do so in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Right? And this is the mystery, the beginning of the unveiling of the mystery that Paul talks about, and he, he, said, he has this beautiful writing about it in Ephesians 3. Listen to what he says. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men. In other ages it wasn't made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, listen, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. You get it? The unveiling of the mystery of the church is that it's a message for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. It is a message of hope. It is a message of light. It is a message of salvation, but it is a message of life now. Life now. That life doesn't start when you take your last breath. That life starts the moment that you repent of your sins, turn to the cross, and acknowledge that you want Him to be the Lord of your life. And so that's the mystery. 
And that's what we see today. You see, here, here's the problem. Where we just, we've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the book of Mark. Today we find ourselves pretty much smack dab in the middle of Mark. We're in the middle of it. And now what's happened is, Jesus has fed the multitudes. He has raised the dead. He has healed the leper. He has cleansed uh, he has cleansed diseases and uh, forgiven people of their sins. And with all of the things that they've seen Jesus do, he's walked on the water. He's calmed the storms. With all the things that we've seen people do, last we saw Jesus, the religious leaders were finding fault because his disciples had not ceremonially cleansed their hands before they ate. It's like, are you serious? He raised the dead. He fed thousands. He walked on the water. He calmed the storms. And you're chasing him away. Why? Why are you finding fault? It makes no sense. And so today what we see is he begins to paint a picture of something that's going to happen with his message and his healing being made available to the Gentiles. And that's what we're going to start looking at in verse 24. It says here, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him. I'm sorry, that's, I'm sorry, that's chapter 7, verse 1. Let's go over to verse 24. <clears throat> Everything today is being blamed on daylight savings time. <laughs> From there he arose and went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Verse 24, chapter 7. And he entered a house and wanted no one to know it, but he could not be hidden. Listen, after he was rejected, where he was at, he took the message into Gentile territory, about 50 miles north. And originally when he got there, he did not want it to be made known that he got there. But he went into Gentile territory, specifically about 50 miles deep into this territory. He had just made a distinction between unclean food and clean food, and now he was about to make a distinction between clean and unclean, quote, people. So he's deep in Gentile territory. He goes into a Gentile house, but it says here in verse 24, it says, he wanted no one to know it. See, there's something in our society called attention-seeking behavior. Anybody know anyone like that? Attention-seeking behavior. Uh, when it's like the way that they respond or what they do, all the attention is me, 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 me. All right, everything that they do, everything that's happening in their life, it's all about me. And it can't be about you because it is about me. Or when you try to make it about you, I'm going to say, well, you're making it about you. Same thing I'm saying is, hey, I need to make it about me again. But that wasn't Jesus. When he went somewhere, it says here that he desired... He went in and he wanted no one to know it. It was not a false humility. When Jesus, when the Bible tells us he wanted no one to know it, he wanted no one to know it. But here's the thing. It says he could not be hidden. Stop right there. Dead in our tracks. He could not be hidden. And when Jesus is in a life, neither should he be able to be hidden in you. When Jesus is right here, when you have repented of your sins and emptied yourself and you're full of the Holy Spirit, all right, and Jesus is there, you shouldn't be able to hide it. 
I shouldn't have to wear a shirt to pronounce it to people, though I might do it to start a conversation. But when Jesus is inside of you, how many of you have met somebody where you said, that person knows Jesus? I know that person knows Jesus. That person's got a smile on their face. They've got a song in their heart. And that person knows Jesus. When Jesus is inside of you, it cannot be hidden. And when Jesus went into a region, I mean, it would be trying to put an elephant in a closet. It doesn't work. So Jesus is trying to be, he's trying to be discreet about what he's doing. He's not trying to draw attention to himself. But listen, when Jesus is inside of you, it should be bursting out of you. It should be something where it's like, listen, he saved me? What, you're serious. God became a man and he went to a cross to die for me, to give me life? That should be something that is bursting forth from us, filling our heart, realizing that you're this loved. That's the thing that's missing in the church today. Realizing that you're this loved by God, that he loves you this much. We should go out of this church, quite honestly, each Sunday, ready to tell anyone and everyone the life-changing transformation that God has wrought about in your heart. What he delivered you from, your story, it's not just one-time testimony where that day that I came up and I answered an altar call and I came to Jesus. Your testimony is being every day that you're committed to growing in the character of Christ and overcoming out in this world. That's your testimony. That's your testimony. He went into a house that could not be hidden. In your workplace, wherever it is, they should be able to look at that, that person. That's just a person so full of Jesus. But listen... Though it cannot be hidden, understand this. When the light of the world came, it was rejected by men. Why? Because that light was shining in the darkness. And the darkness, it said, could not comprehend it. So when Jesus is present in a life, and that's, that's what we see in our passage. So he goes into the Gentile territory, but he can't be hidden. He didn't sit there saying, well, you know what, you know, I'm... I should, I'm, I'm, I'm due these privileges, I'm, you know, I am God, <laughs> you know, I'm God, so, you know, they should be catering to me, they should be serving me. No, when he went there, the Bible tells us about Jesus as a man, that he took on the form of a bondservant, came in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance of man, he humbled himself in obedience. What was it that shone forth about Jesus' character? Things that are so often missing in ours. <laughs> There's a humility that was bursting forth. There is love that was bursting forth. And when Jesus went there, the crowd, they couldn't, they couldn't handle this. They couldn't contain it. Verse 25. It says here, For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came to him and fell at his feet. And the woman was... Greek, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. Let's stop right there for a second. It says here, there was a woman, and according to the places where this is written, what we believe is that this woman was probably there for hours asking him to heal her daughter. She heard that this great physician was coming into town and nobody else could do anything for her daughter. Listen, no physician could. No pagan god they bowed to or called upon could. No experimental treatments could. No therapies, no medication, no holistic solution, no religious leader, no infomercials. Nothing. Nothing could heal this woman's daughter. And in the passage, it is clear she has an unclean spirit. 
talking with a friend recently. In the Bible, when somebody has an unclean spirit, people aren't sitting there trying to figure it out. Well, does this person have an unclean spirit? Or are they just a little messed up? All right, sometimes we'll look at our kids and we'll say, oh, John's got the devil in them today. All right, they got a demon in them today. All right, they've got something going on, but, but that's not necessarily the truth. It's not the truth, okay? What we see in Scripture is that when somebody has a demon, it is clear that they have a demon. There's no ambiguity. It's not like Peter, Paul are sitting there saying, well, this guy, they might have a demon. They might not have a demon. They might just be a little, no. When somebody has a demon in Scripture, it's clear that they have a demon. But let me ask you something. Do you see demon possession? Do you see this kind of demonic activity in the Old Testament like you do during Jesus' day? No, you don't. Do we see it today as prevalent as we see it in Jesus' day? That's, that's, that's debatable. That's an argument for another time. But here's the thing. In human history, there is no greater point documented in history of demonic activity than when Jesus walked this earth. Why? Because when Jesus' work is going forth in power and in truth, that's a threat to Satan. All right, and so were the demons working in the Old Testament? You bet they were, but they could be hidden. They didn't need to veil themselves in the Old Testament. Because at that point, there was no Savior to have died on a cross. Now that Jesus walked the earth, when was Satan's first appearance in the New Testament? When Jesus was in the desert, getting tempted, right? After he took a step of obedience, after Jesus took a step of obedience and was baptized, that's when Satan comes with both barrels. Is that right? And so that's when we see the demonic activity. And maybe you felt this in your life. Maybe you've seen this happen in your life, that the closer you were getting to the plan of Jesus, it seemed like Satan was kind of pulling out both barrels on you. Because that's how he works. That's how he works. But then why aren't we seeing like demon possession in the United States? Do you really want to see it? No, I really don't want to see it. But why don't we see it? Well, we don't see it for a few reasons. One reason is we don't have enough faith. And I'm sorry if that hurts, but we don't have enough faith in the church of Jesus Christ so often to really be exposed to the true enemy out there. We know he's there because the Bible tells us, the Bible exposes that he's there. The Bible has to remind people like us, hey, you're not battling flesh and blood like you think you are. You're battling powers, principalities that are not of this world. That's your re real battle. We have to be reminded of that because of the other reason that we don't see a whole lot of demon possession in the United States. And that reason is because we're so easily distracted by everything. We've got smartphones. We've got dumb phones. We've got internet. We've got TV. Hey, if your cable channel, if your if your cable company doesn't have 500 channels, we'll give you 5,000 channels. 5,000 channels of the same thing on all the time. Why? So you can sit there and over your TV quickly and go on rule. There's nothing on again. 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 And we're so distracted. Satan just sits there and he says, well, I don't need to go after these people with both barrels because they're busy just uh, distracting themselves from me. So these are reasons that we don't, but it doesn't mean that it's not there. Demon possession is out there now. It's not out there for the Christian. Please be clear. 
When we talk about demon possession, it's clear when we see a demon working in the Bible, and the demons are always working. Satan and his dominions are always trying to tear down any good work of God. But the difference between demon possession and demon influence is pretty important for us as a church to recognize. Demon possession, while well, a child of God, can't be possessed by God and the devil. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the enemy. And you have to have opened that door. You have to have somehow open that door. Because just as God won't impinge on your will, neither can Satan. He doesn't have the ability to do that unless we open the door for him. And so we have the demon oppression versus demon possession. Demon influence versus demon indwelling. But here's the other thing. And this is taking the elephant out of the closet regarding this in the church today. Because so many people will look at people struggling with depression and bipolar and mental illness and with real struggles going on in the human brain and they will write it off to, oh, that person must have a demon. No. And you'll put a scarlet letter on that person because you simply don't understand that the brain is like the heart, is like the liver, is like the kidneys, and it's an organ. And sometimes it needs to be treated physically. And we'll see that today because what we're going to see is Jesus goes into this Gentile territory while he's not only healing a spiritual uh, he's, he's not only performing a spiritual healing, but also a physical healing. So there's both that need to be addressed in the church today. Both of them need to be addressed in the church today. Now, for all intents and purposes, back to our passage just for a second, just wanted to make a few clarifications on that. This woman goes to the feet of Jesus because no one else can heal her daughter. And what are we, what are we saying when we go to the feet of someone? Mercy. Help me. Sometimes it's adoration. Sometimes it's reverence. Sometimes it's fear. But in this case, it's humility. And, and help me. Help me. It's a position of powerlessness. We think it's a position of powerlessness. But you as a Christian know this. When you go to the feet of Jesus Christ as a Christian, there's no more powerful position to be in than at his feet. And usually, we're brought to that position by our own desperation. Circumstances, situations orchestrated to bring us to the feet of Jesus as this woman is. Because there's a demon. Let me ask you something. How do you differentiate when it's the voice of God and it's the voice of the enemy in your own life. How do you differentiate that? Recently, there was a guy that drove his Ferrari into the intercoastal waterway. And he said, Jesus told him to do it. I wish you would have heard that Jesus told him to drive it over to 4600 Bonanza Road and leave his Ferrari there rather than drive it in the intercoastal. Okay, but he drove his car in the intercoastal. Jesus told me to do it. Gang, I can invariably tell you that Jesus did not tell the man to drive his Ferrari into the intercoastal waterway. There's another lady that was in the news yesterday saying, well, I stole this SUV, but the devil told me to do it. All right, and all of these things are escaping. We're saying, well, how do we tell the difference? How do you know the voice of God? Here's how you know the voice of God. Spend time with God. My son knows my voice because I talk to him. And he spends time with me, and I spend time with him, and that's how he knows his dad's voice. My father has this whistle. He does this. 
I can't do it. All right. Hold on. No, I just still can't do it. All right, but my father has this whistle. I know this whistle. My, we could be in an airport, and I could be across the airport. When I was a kid, my father would, yeah, I still can't do it. But I could hear that, and I know it was him. Why? Because I've heard it my whole life. I heard it my whole life. You want to know what's God's voice and what's the enemy's voice in your life? Spend time with God. That's one way. That's one way. But the other thing is this, is that it's the voice that you're hearing. Is it consistent with God or is it consistent with something Satan would do? Is it consistent with the call of the world or with the things of heaven? Is it consistent with the fruit of the Spirit or is it consistent with promoting division and hatred and jealousy and envy and ugliness and gossip and immorality? Listen, when you hear the voice, chances are you already know. If you've spent any amount of time in church, if you really want to hear God's voice, guess what? You're going to, because you're His children. It's recognized that this is an unclean spirit in this woman's daughter, and nobody can do anything, and it's brought her to the feet of the one that can, in Gentile territory. Not only in Gentile territory, but understand this, all right, this place that we're at in Gentile territory, what we learn is that it's the same place that Elijah the prophet healed a widow's son in the book of 1 Kings 17. And when Elijah did that, when the prophet did that, when he went into Gentile territory, he was giving us a picture, even back in the Old Testament, that the good news and the healing was going to be made available to the Gentiles. Jesus is doing the same thing here. And when the woman approaches Jesus, you would think, okay, Jesus is so awesome. He's just going to give the healing, and this is going to be a wonderful story. But let me tell you something. When I was doing my studying on this passage, I, an article came up on the Internet yesterday. There are nine passages that pastors refuse and do not like to deal with, and this is number two on the list. And here's why. Because when the woman approaches Jesus, here we go. Jesus said to her, verse 27, Let the children be filled first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Stop right there. Yellow flag on the play. Conduct unbecoming of a loving Savior that hung on a cross for you. Do not take the children's bread and give it to the Gentile dogs. And what is that even about? Because the word for dog in that time, it meant a shameless, audacious woman. It would be same as an expletive that we use today. What? From the mouth of Jesus? Why? Why would Jesus do this? How would we explain this? Now, some commentators say that he softens the term by calling her a little dog. But you're still calling her a dog. Oh, she's just a little dog. Okay, well, that's really nice. Thank you so much, Jesus. You're saying that these are your children and that the Gentiles are dogs. Now, here's what we see in the passage. Why, why would he do this? Because you're about to see, by him pressing back, by him pressing in, something is going to be revealed about this woman's character that is necessary for spiritual healing. That's what you're going to see. When Jesus presses her and he says something like this, how easily would it be for her to be prideful? How easily would it be for her to be offended? How easily would it be to say, you know what? I went to him, I tried to get my daughter healed, but he called me a dog, and I'm not going back there. He's racist. 
Texas, and I'm just not going back. I'm going to call my lawyer, as a matter of fact. They're going to call their lawyer on Jesus. So why? Why? Because of her response. He knew how the woman would respond. It was necessary for this to be revealed how the woman would respond. And here is a response of faith. I want you to listen to her response. She answered and said to him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. Stop there. Do you remember why Jesus left the other region? Do you remember what they were complaining about? Oh, the religious leaders. They didn't wash their hands before they ate the bread. And so they used this ceremony that they came up with to separate them from, from relationship with God because of religious ritual. And here, on her face, the subject of the children's bread comes up. Even a crumb, even a crumb would be better. That's amazing. Instead of the religious ritual that could separate, this woman knew this. Better is one day in your court than thousands elsewhere. Better are the things that come from you. Better is a little bit that comes from you than a whole lot of what the world has to offer with great trouble, according to the book of Proverbs. And so this woman is sitting here and she's desperate. Oh, just the crumbs, Lord. Oh, I, 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 yes, just, 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 I just want the crumb off your table. And what do you see in her response? Do you see faith? Yes, you see faith. And what is faith birthed from? Think about it. If perfect love casts out fear, then what is the result? Faith, this woman somehow knows she's loved. She's heard about Jesus, and all she's heard is enough to say, listen, this is my daughter, and I don't care what happens, I'm staying here, I'm not going to get insulted, I'm not going to get offended, I'm not going to walk away, and I'm not going to miss the healing that's possible. Because she sees, you see faith, you see perseverance, you see humility, and you see desperation. And how many of you have ever heard of the gift of desperation that brings you to your knees and that's really the only place where you're going to get him when we're desperate because the book of Hebrews 11 6 says without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe who he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him does she meet the criteria you betcha how often do we miss the true healing that God is looking for because of our pride, because we get offended so easily, because we have such a thin skin today. Everybody's insulted over everything. Listen, if you understood how much your king loved you, if you understood that Jesus said you were worth going to a cross for, then what can I say that would bring you down? How much power have you given me? If I can say something, if they can say something that will make you feel like less than what God created you to be, how much power have we given that person? When God said, I made you a child by sending my son to die on a cross. End game. That's the end of the conversation. There's nothing left to say after that. 
God loves me. He values me. He accepts me. He forgives me. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you've been made a child of God. Talking with a friend recently about how the church reduces the message. How does the church reduce the message today? We're going to play a song. You get emotional. And you come up here and we will give you a get out of hell free card. I'm joking, but I'm not. Because you can miss the whole thing. There's a promise of you, for you in this room, of abundant life. And here's how it doesn't come about. It doesn't come about by you saying, well, I'll go on Sunday if I can. I'll read my Bible if I feel like it. I'll get up. No. It's a matter of you realizing you're truly a child of God. And being a child of God, you have a father that wants to spend time with you. How worth it was it for him to spend time with you? He sent his son to die on a cross so that he could have relationship and spend time with you. He made time for you. Are you making time for him? Because it's really, really easy to walk away when we get in our pride and when we get caught up in our feelings, is it not? It's really easy to walk away from situations. You see that in 2 Kings 5, and we'll turn there just for a moment. We're not going to go through the whole story. All you need to know is that in 2 Kings 5, there's a story of a man named Naaman. And Naaman is a Syrian commander. They're enemies of the children of Israel. And Naaman is a great general. He's an honorable man. There's one problem. He has leprosy, and no one can heal him. Well, after one of their conquests... They bring back a young girl, a maidservant in the household from the land of Israel. This maidservant says, listen, oh, if only you lived in Israel, my master, Naaman, the leper, if only you lived in Israel, there's a prophet there that could heal you. And so what does Naaman do? Naaman says, okay, he goes to his king and the king says, okay, go. I'm going to give you a bunch of money and I'm going to give you everything you need and go get your healing. Go to this prophet in Israel. And so Naaman goes. And when he goes to Israel, verse 7 of chapter 5 of 2 Kings says this. It happened when the king of Israel read the letter. So, so Naaman's king sent a letter from the king of Israel saying, heal my boy. The king of Israel tore his clothes, said, Am I a god to kill and make alive? And this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy. Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. The king of Israel is like, Oh, the king of Syria just wants to start a war with me. Verse 8 says, So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be made clean. But that's not what Naaman was expecting. When he went to the prophet's house, what he was expecting was something different. And so it says, verse 11, it says, But Naaman became furious, and he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, and wave his hand over me, and heal the leprosy. 
Are not the Abana and the Farfar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Why does he go away in a rage? It's in his pride. He's offended. He feels humiliated because he went there and he was like, listen, okay, I'm a great general. There's a great prophet. Surely we'll speak mano a mano. He'll wave a wand over me and I'll be healed. That was his expectation. But now, because of his pride, he's about to miss his healing. He's about to walk away. That's when we're most likely to miss our healing, when we're not ready to humble ourselves. And so he's ready to walk away. Verse 13, His servant came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean. So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Listen, it's usually at the point of your breakthrough that you're ready to walk away from something. It's usually because we won't humble ourselves. It's usually because of something like, like this woman, what she heard from Jesus. Oh, the little dogs. No, no. If she walked away, what would happen? Would the healing come? If she walked away, the healing would not come. If she walked away in her pride, the healing would not come. But what we see here is that Naaman humbles himself. And because of the humility, he receives the healing. It's the same for the Christian going to the cross. I need a Savior. Oh, what if they do an altar call? Would you walk up or would you be afraid? Well, what would the, what would the rest of the 50... Uh, 40, 50 people, what would they think if they saw me go up there? It would be so embarrassing. They'll know that I need a crutch. Guess what, gang? Everybody's leaning on something. And it might as well be someone that loved you enough to go to a cross for you to give you life. That's the gospel. It came because he desired relationship with you. There's no amount of money you have to offer him. There's no talent that you have to give him. There's no he, he created everything out of nothing. Why did he send his son to a cross? Because he desired relationship with you. Back to our passage in Mark. So these are some criteria that we see from the woman's standpoint. When she's challenged, we see humility. We see perseverance. We see desperation. And we see faith. Listen to Jesus' response to all this. Verse 29, it says, For this saying, go your way, the demon has gone out of your daughter. What don't you see? You don't see theatrics. You don't see pomp and circumstance in the healing. You don't say, let me throw my jacket at you and you're going to be healed. You don't see you're being knocked over on the stage. These are all things that you do not see in the passage. What you see instead, Jesus simply says, go your way, she's healed. That's it? Yes. And that's all it has to be. That's all it has to be. He's in Gentile territory. This woman believes I'm honoring it. Just a word for me is enough. I think he can heal like that if he chooses to. What do you think? If he created everything out of nothing, then it seems to me it would be no big deal. God, go your way. Be healed. Because he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. Right? He's a rewarder. And so Jesus continues, and it says, verse 30, when she had come to her house, 
She found the demon gone out and her daughter lying in bed. And the healing is coming. Okay, one more quick passage, and again, it's Jesus in Gentile territory. Now you've seen a spiritual healing, but there's something else that we see here. It's verse 31. It says, again, departing from the region of Tyre and Sidon, he came through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. Then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech, and they begged him to put his hand on him. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers in his ears, and he spat and touched his tongue. Then looked up to heaven, and he sighed, and he said, Ephatha, that is be open. Stop right there. Look at the way that he goes about the healing. Now we have somebody that has a physical problem. He can't hear. He can't speak. And what do these things have in common? Communication, right? Communication. So first we see spiritual separation, but now what we see is communication. They can't hear. They can't speak. Now how's Jesus going to go about doing this? You see, because very rarely do you see him heal someone the same way twice. Why? So we can't come up with this formula that says, well, if I do this, 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 and this, I'm sure to receive healing. It's always something that is dependent upon and specific to the way that the Holy Spirit desires to work in the situation. And so what does he do? I love what he does here, because in my house I'm known as the king of wet willies. Some of you here have received them from your pastor. All right, you know what a wet willy. Well, this isn't a wet willy, okay? But here's where he meets this man where he's at. Individually, he takes him aside. It's intimate, the healing. Isn't that right? It says here that he takes him aside. It says they brought him one that had an impediment in his speech, and he took him aside from the multitude. He says, okay. Again, it's not attention-seeking behavior. This is between you and me. And being that you can't hear what I'm going to say, I'm going to do something that is going to convey to you what's about to happen. And I'm going to put my fingers in your ears. And when he puts his fingers in his ears and he takes them out, the man can hear. And then what he does is he spits and he puts it on his tongue. A little gross, but spit was medicinal in the day. Spit was considered to be medicinal in the day. And this is what we see in the physical healings. Don't be afraid if your doctor prescribes you medication. Now, we're also over-prescribed on medication in our society, and you know that. We don't have to get into that whole thing. But we don't have to disdain it and completely avoid it either. As Jesus does something so incredibly intimate and so specific and so individualized in the situation, he puts his finger in the man's ears. He spat and touched his tongue. Then he looked up to heaven and sighed and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Be opened. Immediately, his ears were opened. And the impediment of his tongue was loose. And he spoke plainly. Then he commanded them that they should tell no one. But the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. There was no hiding this. It was the power of Jesus at work in this world. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. It says here in one commentary that I read, Immediately his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was loosed, and he spoke plainly. The ancient Greek word for the impediment in his speech 
is Bogolian and is only used here in the New Testament. It's a word that is also used once in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament in Isaiah 35, 36. And I want to read this to you because this is the significance of this young at this moment from Isaiah 35, 36. And it reads like this. It says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. This was a messianic prophecy back in the book of Isaiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. And the tongue of the dumb will sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. That was the promise of the Messiah. And now the promise is going out into the Gentile territory because there's a message here. It can bring spiritual healing. It can bring physical healing. For anybody that has been in a spiritual struggle, then the Word of God is powerful and living and active and His Spirit inside of you can give you victory over whatever spiritual struggle you're having in this moment. And if that's not good enough, physical healing is also available. Physical healing is also available. Will everybody receive it? No. That's pretty clear in Scripture. It's pretty clear in Scripture that not everybody receives physical healing. When Paul had a thorn in his flesh that was given by God, he asked three times for it to be removed. God's answer is, my grace is sufficient for you. Timothy had an ailment. Paul said, take some uh, wine, take some vinegar, take some wine for your tummy. Not everybody's going to receive physical healing, but it's available. Physical healing is available by the power of Jesus Christ. And it says he does all things well. When people looked at what Jesus did, there was no doubt at the end of the day, when he came into a region and when he did something, there was no doubt as to the power that it was at work in and through him. Going through this passage in preparation for today and looking at the spiritual and physical healing has been an encouragement to me this week, and I'll tell you why. Because a few months ago, we were given all clear by the oncologist saying that mom was cancer free. And a couple of weeks ago, that idea was shattered when they told us that um, her cancer was fourth stage and had spread to the bone. A few months ago, I was praising God. Dad was healed of cancer, and mom is healed of cancer. Wow, what a testimony. Even the doctor said, well, I've never seen this before except for you. Whole family celebrating. Am I disappointed? You bet. Am I angry with God? No. Do I wish the circumstance was different? Yes. Am I going to keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Yes. Because he's good. Because he's good. But let me tell you the journey that I've been through. Maybe some of you can relate to it this week. This week, my emotions have challenged truth. Maybe that's happened to some of you in this room. This week, my emotions have risen up to here. And they've challenged the truth that I know. 
Oh, when they started the hospice conversation with mom, it's a conversation that I talked so many people into. Oh, this is the right move for you and your loved one. And I did it for 12 years, and I was really good at it. But now having to introduce the conversation with my own family became a challenge. And not only that, but as a pastor, I know how to counsel people through this. I know what to tell them. I know what scriptures to point them to. I know the truth. But that doesn't stop the emotions from welling up and trying to become like a Goliath and overcome me completely. And there's been a wrestling match, quite honestly. But it was brought to my attention the other night that as these emotions rise up, that I can either respond when Goliath rises up like a soldier of Saul, shrinking in fear, or like a son of God, like David, rising in faith. And there is a choice to be made in whatever situation that you're in, because the emotions are always going to try to crush the truth. But the truth of the matter is this. We serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. He's in the world through you. Because here's what's happened this week. I've had people come out of the woodwork. PJ, I want to pray for you. PJ, I want to help take care of your mom. PJ, I want to do this. PJ, I want to do this. Holding the hands of a brother up. People that I never expected to do certain things. I had somebody come the other week and say, you know, is it presumptuous if I were to ask if I could pray for you and Tiffany? No! I'm not the Pope, man. All right? I'm not the Pope. I'm just a pastor. Yes, we could use your prayer. But listen, here's the thing. We as Christians, and this is a message that I heard this week that resonated with me, and I need to pass it on. We as Christians are not promised that everything is going to uh, have a happy ending on this planet. But because he died for me, I live. And because he lives, I can face tomorrow. And what we're called to be in tomorrow and today, through our own darkness and through the other things that, that, that come in there and try to crush us, we're called to be light and we're called to be love. And we have an endless reservoir, rivers of living water, of peace that surpasseth understanding, unspeakable joy, and, and unconditional love. It's been given us and we're called to be it. And whenever something comes against it, that's when we need to press into Him. Listen, and I've told some of you this already, that Mom has struggled in her last few years. And I've seen some real challenges in the way that, that she's responded to things and that we've responded to things. But guess what? Resolving right now in our heart, through however this whole thing plays out, we are going to honor God. We are going to honor God through it. And I would challenge you that whatever is pressing in on you, if your resolve is to honor Him because you're His child and shine His light and be His love, He will give you everything you need by the power of His Holy Spirit to do that.